My name is Lalu Davies Yemitin, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. Ahead of the threat, protecting the United States, its people, and upholding the Constitution. That combination is the vision and mission of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. My guest today knows all too well uh, a longtime public servant who has been on the front line of defending not just our country, its people, but the very liberties that we hold dear. Perry Turner, thank you so much for making yourself available uh, uh, for my brother podcast. Excited to have you on. Look forward to learning about your story. But if you would just introduce us a little bit to yourself, your background, and tell us a bit about how you arrived uh, where in the seat where you sit uh, at this point in your career. So first of all, thank you, sir, for allowing me to be a part of the My Brother uh, podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm quite honored uh, that you reached out and asked me to participate. Um, I'm, I work for the FBI, as you mentioned. I'm the special agent in charge, and some of you may not know what that means, but I'm the, uh, the CFO, the CEO, and the COO of FBI Houston. Um, and in Texas, we have four field offices. Uh, we have an office in Dallas, one in El Paso, and one in San Antonio. So I run the, the FBI office in Houston, the largest office in the state of Texas. We cover 40 counties, 40,000 square miles, and we service 8 million people. And so I'm a 29-year veteran uh, of the FBI. They say you know, time flies when, you, when you're having fun. It's a very uh, exciting career with a, a, a very dynamic you know, operational uh, environment. And uh, prior to becoming uh, here to Houston, uh, which I've been here for six years. I also ran field office in Louisville, Kentucky. Got it. Thank you so much for that uh, introduction. I'm sure, you know, I think Houston is the greatest place in the world, but you weren't born here, you know, so it all started somewhere from prior to you getting to Louisville, Kentucky. So why don't you take us back to uh, the beginning of your life? Where were you born and what was your early upbringing like? So I'm a native of uh, Shreveport, uh, Louisiana, uh, born and raised, uh, educated in the uh, Cattle Parish uh, school system. Um, I went to Louisiana Tech University uh, where I got my undergrad degree in mathematics and statistics. Uh, once I graduated from college, I uh, pursued a, a career in the insurance industry in Shreveport. I worked there for about three and a half years. Didn't really like what I was doing, so I decided to go back to, co to, to grad school at Louisiana Tech to pursue a master's degree in mathematics. And while I was in grad school, uh, I ran across a an FBI recruiter and uh, um, listened to what he had to say. Uh, I made application, got hired back in 1991 and uh, been on board uh, ever since. Um, my, my father um, was worked for the railroad. My mother was a nurse's aide. Uh, I have a sister and three brothers. I'm the middle child of what's uh, something some of the country folks say is the uh, the, uh, the the knee baby. So, uh, but uh, but you know, hardworking family had some very positive uh, male role models. Um, when I was young, growing up, uh, grandfather was a farmer, retired from uh, Ralston Perina, and my uncle was a sergeant major uh, in in the Marine Corps, and they were very uh, they were disciplinarians. They believed in the hard work, um, education. If you got in trouble at school, you, you got you got to beat down when you came home. So it was all about uh, you know doing the right thing and 
and stay out of trouble and, and, get a, and get a sound education. Yeah, you know, I've had the pleasure of always driving through Shreveport a few times. I've never spent a lot of time there. But what's li life like or what was life like for an elementary school kid in, in northern Louisiana? Well, so when I when I first started elementary school, it was right around the time of uh, of integration. Um, so I was one of the the first kids to I think I think integration for, started for me uh, when I was in kindergarten and in first grade. And obviously there were a lot of race issues, you know, growing up. And you know we just didn't really think anything of it. But you know there were there was there was separation you know between the races. Uh, I recall growing up, you know, playing on on the playground. Um, you know, playing football, black against white. But uh, I think it, it was, uh, I mean, I think it definitely uh, instills, you know, values um, uh, into us growing up, you know, as far as taking advantage of all your opportunities and uh, just, just doing the best you can with, with what you got and, uh, and and also living, you know, living with, within your means. Certainly, certainly. So, I mean, that's just incredible to think that, and I, <laughs> That even as kids, right, in a sense, you're 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 still not integrated, uh, whether by design or de facto. It, it just kind of happened that way. So, the elementary school that you went to in middle school, high school, where they, I, I presume, by the time you get got to middle school, it was, I guess, fully integrated by then. Yeah. So, I mean, elementary school obviously was was integrated, and you know, Shreveport is a little bit different um, as far as the demographics are of, of each of each school. So uh, middle school is mostly predominantly, you know, African-American junior high school. Uh, high school uh, was was a mixture, like 50-50 uh, African-American, you know, white students. And, and once again, most of the kids that I went to school with, I sort of grew up with uh, starting uh, in the elementary. You know, Shreveport is not a, a large town and sort of separated by what part of the area that you live in. So you, you kind of grew up um, in attended school, elementary, junior high school, um, high school for the most part uh, with the kids that, that you met uh, early on in, in elementary school. So it's kind of like a, you know, a small town, um, a city type environment where everybody knows everybody, you know, for, for yeah. the most part. And so you take your small town experience, how did you uh, make a decision about where you wanted to attend college and what was that transition like preparing yourself for college uh, from, from high school? Well, you know, I had positive, you know, role models. I had an aunt that was a mathematics major. Um, I think she went to Southern University, and I think she may have gone to Cal Berkeley, uh, you know, getting a degree in math and then, and then a master's or a doctor's degree uh, in computer science. So uh, to me, mathematics was um, a, uh, a uh, profession or a major for, for our entire family. Um, my sister also went to college. Uh, she pursued a, a degree um, in engineering. My brother also went to college, so it was just a you know family business, you know, going going to college, and also um, the values that uh, were, were passed down on to us uh, from our parents and our grandparents. You know, my my my, my father, my mother, that uh, they were not college graduates, so you know, once again, they they encouraged encouraged us uh, to you know to achieve a higher level than than, than what they had attained. So it's just you know just just trying to make 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 it make life better for yourself and and try to and try to reach or achieve your goals to to the best of your ability. Yeah, 
And so I don't know what Louisiana Tech, where it is exactly. I mean, I know about La Tech. I've just never been there. But well, what was life like when you now uh, matriculated college and what was that experience like? Well, I mean, Louisiana Tech was a you know a predominantly uh, white college. Um, we had a relatively uh, small small you know African American uh, population, uh, you know, from all over the state of Louisiana. Uh, you know, athletics uh, was, was key, uh, but it was a it was an engineering school, uh, and I, I really enjoyed you know my 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 college experience. Uh, it, it, you know, it taught me you know how to interact with people, um, uh, how to be responsible. Um, and also, we you know we had Grandma State University you know five miles down down the road. So um, once again, it's all you know it's a relatively small community. You know everybody kind of knew each other, and it definitely uh, expanded um, my uh, my sphere of influence, uh, my you know my my levels of, uh, of friendships. Um, I did pledge Alpha Phi Alpha, you know the best fraternity uh, in the world. And, uh, so I've heard, <laughs> <laughs> and so and so some of the friendships that uh, that that I I attained while I was there, you know, we still keep in contact with each other. You know, I was chapter president, so I think uh, you know Alpha is all about uh, leadership, and I think some of the um, the the skills and some of the the core values of Alpha, you know, the fraternity as a whole, uh, sort of sort of helped me um, grow up, grow into to what I'm am, I'm am today. Yeah. So you're a student leader while you're obviously at La Tech. Uh, what did you major in and how did you balance, um, you know, being super active as a student leader as well as uh, the academic side of, of the collegiate experience? Well, I majored in mathematics and uh, it, it was a tough major. Uh, engineering was a, um, I mean, it was an engineering school. Uh, we were on a quarter system. Um, so the uh, the academic or the, uh, the the calendar, the school calendar went went kind of fast. Um, so you you had to have that school um, balance, you know, school you know college like balance, and it was challenging. You know, being in the fraternity, uh, it, it was it was tough to to try to manage both. But you know, the first couple of years, you, you sort of get acclimated or adjusted uh, to to college life. You know, towards the towards the end of your um, your academic life at, at the university, you, you sort of settle into your yourself, develop that battle rhythm, you know, come up with the game plan to to, to graduate. And once again, you know, the people who I hung around with, you know, they were all serious minded uh, college students, you know, people of similar backgrounds, similar yoke, you know, trying, you know, trying to make um, make something out of themselves and, and you know, being focused and, and trying to graduate. And um, and I was definitely successful in doing that. Yeah. And so when you when you're about to earn your degree, what was your plan going forward and what was the transition uh, from your undergraduate experience in college to, you know, what your subsequent step was? So I wanted to work, you know, it being a mathematics major, I kind of wanted to work for a, a technology uh, a company. But my, my GPA wasn't the highest, and I think that was one of the disadvantage of, of not uh, having parents that, um, that may have gone to college that may have said, hey, you may want to make sure that your GPA uh, is 3.0 or above because that may you know shy away. Regardless of how smart you think you are, or how dedicated the three you think you are, that may that may scare away you know some of the um, technology companies or some of the institutions that you may want to work for. So I basically took the first job opportunity that I had, and that was working um, in Shreveport 
Louisiana uh, Ford Insurance Company uh, as a claims adjuster. Um, and that was Aetna uh, Casualty Insurity. And, and basically my job was a commercial uh, property claims adjuster. Um, and so you may say, well, I don't see how you could use your or leverage your mathematical skills uh, in, in that profession. But basically I would go out and, and, and adjust commercial property claims like, um, you know, uh, commercial buildings, uh, churches, you know, skyscrapers. And I was also part of the uh, the Aetna catastrophe team. So whenever there's like a a windstorm or a hurricane or a tornado, I was I was deployed uh, to those various locations uh, to to adjust claims. And so I think some of the skills that I acquired in that role also prepared me uh, for you know my, my my current role. You know, being able to manage crises, uh, being able to interact with people, uh, being able to provide uh, information to people that may not be too you know, positive or pleasant, um, and you know, and and and, be, and and to and to have you know what I what I call tough skin to let things, you know, roll roll off your back and and, and not not let it affect or impact you. Mm. So you start your career as a claims adjuster. You're developing these skills. You're applying some of your mathematical skills, your critical thinking, crisis management, etc. Uh, then you said you had a chance encounter with someone. How did that happen and how did it end up altering to the trajectory uh, of the career path uh, that you were on? And that's a great question. So I wasn't really happy, you know, with that with that career. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't, you know, I kind of wanted to um, see the world, you know, leave Louisiana, experience life. And I just felt that I was not, you know, growing in that profession. And so uh, I, did, I heard about the FBI. I knew that I knew what the FBI's requirements were to become a special agent. Uh, you have to have a, a college degree, uh, some type of professional work experience. I think at that time it was three years. So I waited uh, to I had that three year uh, requirement. I made an application uh, with the FBI. And then once I got my experience, I said, look, I just I'm going to make a career change. I, I left. I, I resigned and I decided to go back to uh, to college to pursue my master's degree, and and so while while I was in college uh, or, or in grad school, I ran across an FBI recruiter and he basically encouraged me to continue, you know, with the application process and he sort of uh, helped me um, navigate through that process and uh, um, got on board. My my first assignment was uh, Huntsville, Alabama. Perry, before you get there, I just want to ask, what planted that seed, though? Like, I mean, like, I've never thought of going to go work for the FBI, and I don't think most people just naturally are. I mean, there's some people who are may have, you know, gotten a degree in criminal justice or, or something along those lines. But most of us don't just have this sparkle to say, I want to go work for the FBI. So what planted that seed for you? So there were, there were a couple of things. So I was always in, intrigued by, you know, the detective shows. Uh, I know you, you, may, you may be a tad bit younger than me, but, uh, you know, shows like, uh, you know, Barnaby Jones, you know, the, you know, the original Shaft, um, mm. you know, Maddox, you know, you know, those those type of shows. Um, and also my, my sister, you know, my, my sister, I think she had tried to, to become an FBI agent, um, but she didn't have the experience. And I think when when I was you know, talking to her about, you know, my desire to to change professions. Um, she asked me to take a look at the FBI. So she sort of steered me in, in that direction. And I did my you know, my own independent research and, mm -hmm. and recognized that that was a great opportunity for me to pursue, especially when I wanted to you know travel 
um, the, the world, get outside of Shreveport, um, you know, get outside my, my, my comfort zone. And that's basically what, what I did. Okay. Now, so now back to, you said your first job ended up being in, I believe, Huntsville, Alabama. Well, so my, so, uh, so when you, um, when you get hired by the FBI, you have to go to the, uh, the training academy, which is at Quantico, um, Virginia. Yeah. It's like a four week, I'm sorry, a four month training program. And so during the eight week uh, time period, um, you, you, you determine what your first office of assignment is going to be. And um, I kind of wanted to go. So so to give you like a wish list. And so you you, you rank where you want to go. I think from it's like it's called your, your top 10 dream list where, where you want to go. And I ranked I think it was Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, Washington, D.C., San Francisco. And I think I ranked uh, Birmingham number number 10. And so I ended up going to Huntsville, Alabama. So I was kind of I was kind of bummed about getting my 10th choice because I kind of wanted to to leave the South and, you know, and experience something uh, a little bit different, you know, mm. a, a different, a different culture, a different environment. So you, uh, what was training like? I mean, I, I, I know I also, I'm a big, you know, whenever I'm able to a big fan of watching movies, mysteries, you know, there was a, I can't remember the name of the show, but it kind of, I think it was called Quantico actually focused <laughs> on, Oh, oh, and that's kind of how I once you say Quantico. Yeah. So, what, what was that training experience like, and and what does everyone who start started training or to do? Is it everyone who starts the training that makes it through? Uh, so it was training was was uh, quite intense, and and once again, you know, being a small uh, you know town, Louisiana boy, it was kind of intimidating. Um, and so your your class consists of between thirty and, and fifty. Uh, students from around the United States and, you know, first day of class, you get up and talk about yourself, uh, your background. I noticed that I was one of the uh, younger, you know, students in, in the class. I think the average uh, class age is like 29 to 30 and I was a 25, 26 year old. So it was, uh, you know, it, it could be quite intimidating, but the, uh, the, the training consists of uh, um, legal training, uh, forensics, um, you know, white collar crime, uh, defensive tactics, um, you know, firearms. Also, there's a physical uh, fitness, you know, uh, component, and and you have exams. And if you don't pass your exams, I think if you fail two exams, uh, you get kicked out of the academy. Or if you don't con conduct yourself uh, in in a professional manner, you you can get kicked out. Um, so I think we may have lost about two or three people uh, in in my class, but. Uh, um, and there's several, I think there's like several classes. So your class may be 35 to 50 people and there are other classes um, there along with you that may start after you or start or start before you. It's like a, uh, they, they soccer you in and soccer you out. And, um, you know, once you once you finish your uh, academy training, uh, you're, you're off to your first assignment, which is an FBI field office. Got it. Are there things that, you know, people might do to prepare themselves for training? Were there things that you did or did you just say, hey, show me where to, uh, let me know where to show up and I'm ready to go day one? Well, you know, there's always somebody that's going to sort of mentor you through the process, like an applicant coordinator or applicant recruiter, and, and they'll give you an idea as to what to expect. Um, I was very fortunate because, um, as I mentioned, I was in grad school uh, awaiting for, for my academy day to start. And there was a, a young um, 
a young guy that got sort of, uh, I think he had, he got injured while at the academy. Mm. And so he was also a Louisiana Tech student. In fact, he worked at the university. So um, as I was preparing to go, he was, he came back to sort of um, uh, get uh, healed up. He, he was recycled. So he kind of gave me an idea as to, as to what to expect. He sort of managed my expectations, talked about physical fitness, you know, talked about, uh, you know, quantico dynamics, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I was, uh, I was very prepared, you know, when I, when I got there and, and once again, I think some of the experience that I gained from, you know, being in crisis management, working in the private sector, um, you know, going off to, to various, you know, training uh, academies on how to adjust claims or how to interpret insurance policies uh, really prepared me uh, or really helped me navigate through, um, through, through FBI training. Yeah. And plus, I was young and in shape and I was like <laughs> a lean, mean fighting machine back then. So <laughs> that really helped. Uh, so your first job as a field officer, it's in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, what was that transition like? How did that experience kind of set the foundation for your future career in the FBI? So I was a, I was a special agent assigned to the Huntsville resident office, which was a sub office of the, the Birmingham field office. And I was the uh, first African-American agent ever uh, to be assigned to, to Huntsville. At that time, Huntsville was maybe like a, um, a eight or nine uh, person office, and and I uh, was like I said, the youngest person there, and and I uh, was kind of apprehensive about you know being there, but they treated me like I was, you know, one of them, a very professional, you know, looked looked after me, uh, you know, tried to find me a date. At that time, I was single, so they they were trying to look out for me, um, inviting me over to to their homes for 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 dinner. It was just a very, uh, you know, very positive um, experience uh, for me and also very welcoming culture uh, for me, uh, you know, in my first assignment. And also the fraternity, uh, you know, they had a very um, robust graduate chapter uh, in Huntsville. Um, I still talk to those guys um, uh, now. So Alpha, Alpha, Delta Lambda, uh, great chapter there. Um, I'm sorry, it's the wrong chapter, but it, it was a very phenomenal yeah. experience. Great friendships. Um, it just uh, and um, really love Huntsville. I still go back on occasion to visit some of my friends there. So, what were some of your duties as an entry level field officer? So, my, so in a in a smaller office, you you tend to work everything. Um, and so, my I was a criminal investigator. So, some of the things that I worked were. Uh, you know, gangs, drugs, fugitives, uh, criminal enterprises, um, bank robberies. You know, back then, bank robberies were 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 big uh, in Huntsville, and you know, some of the some of the counties on the outside of Huntsville uh, were very rural. So you, you had a lot of uh, a lot of violent crime, you know, activity. Also, a lot of domestic terrorism, uh, and, and some and sometimes in in rural Alabama, you do have. Um, um, uh, right-wing, you know, terrorist organizations that, that we that we worked at that time, but pr primarily it was uh, it was gangs, drugs, criminal enterprises, you know, white white collar crime is what I worked. So, with such a small office, how how you know how do you allocate your time, or how did how did you maximize efficiency? I mean, when you say there were nine people in an office, and I, I've got to imagine despite everyone working on everything, you know, how did you do your job efficiently and effectively? 
So during that time, at that time period, so you, each person, each agent had their own county. Um, so I think at that time I was assigned to Limestone uh, County, and that was a long time ago. So forgive me if my memory um, doesn't do me a good service. But so everything in Limestone County, uh, every crime that came out of Limestone County, that was a federal violation. Uh, that, that was my territory. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, uh, that entailed me having to build a relationship with the um, with, with the sheriff, you know, the, the various uh, police uh, chiefs or, uh, or municipalities in that in that county, I had to have a relationship, you know, with with, with those people, um, and so that, that's how. So if anything happened, they would call me and say, "Hey, we, we got this bank robbery, or we have this white collar crime case. You know, can can you come um, help us, or can you can you come provide support for what we're trying to do?" Yeah. So, how long did you spend in Huntsville, and what was your transition from? Uh, what was your next job after that first position as a special agent? Right. So I, I worked in Huntsville for about uh, three and a half years. And uh, in the FBI, you have what's called an officer preference um, program to where if you want to go back to your home state, you, you put your name on a list. And, and when your name or number comes up, you're offered the opportunity to, to come back to, you know, to, to your hometown. So. Uh, my next assignment was in Monroe, uh, Louisiana, which is about uh, 100 miles from Shreveport. So after three plus years in Huntsville, I, uh, I transferred to uh, Louisiana, to Monroe, Louisiana, and worked in the uh, resident office there, which was part of the New Orleans field office. So I was in, I was in Monroe for about, uh, for about five years, and uh, each office has a different dynamic. Um, in Louisiana, you know, there's a lot of corruption. Um, a lot of violent crimes also. So that's where I, I kind of got exposed to law enforcement corruption, public corruption, uh, complex investigations, you know, Tile three wiretaps, undercover operations, um, et cetera. Yeah, so, you know, the more you talk about what your job entailed, it seems like so much more of it was about really uh, 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 a thought process, you know, applying a lot of intellect, complex problem solving. So what, I mean, I know your training is part of it, but you've talked about your your background as a claims adjuster, but, you know, people who thrive in your position, what makes them unique or how do they, what, what helps them do their job exceptionally well? And, and, and that's a great question. I think um, the more experience, you know, any good agent, um, they they develop what's called investigative instincts, and and the goal of a of, of a seasoned agent is to work the case from from start to finish. Um, and like for example, I worked a um, a corruption case that was also uh, it was police corruption, uh, it was public corruption, uh, it was gangs, drugs, and criminal enterprises, and uh, it was it was started just by talking to local my, my local partners, sheriff's department. Uh, in North Louisiana, the DA's office investigators saying, "Hey, you know, we need some help. Um, we have a we have a we have a corrupt city, a corrupt town, and we just don't have the resources uh, to to manage this. Can you can, can you come in and, and help us?" And so it's all about coming in, you know, building partnerships, relationships, identifying what the what what the crime problem is, identifying who the bad actors are, and coming up with a strategy. Or, or a game plan to uh, to initiate an investigation 
and and bring that investigation to conclusion. And that's you know building building a case and also getting that case prosecuted uh, in federal court. Yeah. So I, again, I'm just curious. So if I ever go too far in my questions, no. just let me know. Um, I can't even imagine. So when you have a complex case, I mean, how much time are you having to spend on that versus other lingering issues or new developments? Again, with so few people operating in your office, I think sometimes people think, oh, it's the FBI, there's an army of people. But really, it's like whoever that special agent is. And there, I mean, I've got to think that you weren't working just 40 hour weeks. No, absolutely not. And, and there's there's several you know parts to, to that equation. You know, once again, you're you're leveraging um, partnerships. You know, with with a task force, uh, state, local, you know, federal partners. Um, you're also managing a caseload uh, to where you have to um, you got to have a work life balance, and, and and you can't let sometimes cases can investigations can consume you, and also it's all you, you got to exercise strategy. You know, you got to. Um, um, develop an informant base. You know, you got to prove or disprove that there's a crime, and you got to know the elements, you know, of that crime in order to get a to build a case and also to get a successful prosecution. So you also have to work with the uh, the, the prosecuting attorney's office, and you also have that relationship with, as I mentioned, with local law enforcement. Some of the cases that we work may not rise to a federal uh, prosecution level, so that case, those cases can be, you know, prosecuted in, in state or local court. So it's it's a lot of a lot of dynamics, a lot of you know planning, a lot of logistics that goes into you know working uh, investigations. But um, at the end of the day, it's all about um, you know sometimes cases can be long term, sometimes cases sometimes they can be reactive, proactive. But you know any good agent um, can challenge themselves by working long term cases, and it's all about you know start to finish. You know what what am I trying to accomplish? Am I trying to uh, work the individual or I'm trying to take out an entire organization. And the one thing that differentiates uh, 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 the FBI from local law enforcement is that we work, uh, we investigate organizations, not necessarily an individual. It's like, in, you know, eradicating or dismantling or disrupting an entire drug trafficking organization uh, to include uh, the local gang or, or criminal enterprise there, you know, within their respective city you know, to include, you know, where's the narcotics coming from? You know, where's the corruption coming from? Is it coming from Los Angeles? Is it coming from Houston? Is it coming from Mexico? Is it coming from Colombia? So those are some of the things that, that we think about. And, and once again, it's to disrupt or dismantle, you know, the entire uh, criminal organization. Thank you for that explanation. Uh, I, I definitely, uh, something I, I was intrigued about. So, uh, appreciate you shedding a little bit more light on what the work of an uh, agent really looks like and feels like and flows like. So you're back in Monroe, Louisiana. You, you, you're building up on your career. You're earning your chops, earning your stripes. Uh, what happens next? And were there any major cases along the way that maybe provided that next break for you in your career? Right. So, you know, working in complex cases, I decided I wanted to, to give, you know, management uh, a try. Um, and that case that I worked, it, it sort of garnered uh, national uh, media attention because it, it made a, a, a impact not only in the community, but throughout the entire state or that region of Louisiana. So in order to um, to get promoted, you have to compete against other uh, 
um, um, personnel throughout the entire FBI. So whenever a job post or opens up, you have to, you know, make an application to it. And it's like a, a career board. So, you know, once you throw your name in the hat, you know, your, your, rep, your reputation, your accomplishments, your merit uh, goes before that board and, and you're selected. And those assignments are in, in Washington, D.C. Um, so my first uh, leadership assignment was at FBI headquarters um, in Washington, D.C. And I was like a um, supervisory special agent um, in the Criminal Investigative Division, um, um, Mexican Criminal Syndicate Unit, our Latin American unit. So basically, I, I would provide support uh, to field office investigations. We'll say that someone wanted to do like an undercover operation or needed money to um, to 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 buy drugs or to pay bribes. I had to get headquarters uh, approval or concurrence uh, to support um, that investigation. Uh, so I would interact with a bunch of field office supervisors, you know, agents to get an idea as to what they needed and also provide that support uh, to, to them, you know, from, from FBI headquarters. Now, how long had you been in the agency at this point where you get to go back to DC? So roughly about eight years. So, you know, once again, it's all about, you know, reputation. It's all about merit. You're competing against other people throughout the entire FBI enterprise. So, um, you know, those those opportunities, you know, were not hard to uh, to get. So you have to you have you, you got to have a, a tight a tight promotion package and in order to be considered. And I think the work that I did in in, uh, in Louisiana, uh, which was a target rich uh, environment and probably still is at that time, you know, afforded me the opportunities, uh, you know, to, to compete, you know, for, for those for those uh, opportunities. Yeah. And so now you're in you're in D.C. headquarters, you're in the supervisory role. Um, how long did that persist? And, you know, that presumably when was the next promotion? But as you describe that, perhaps you might uh by my calculation, you were in D.C. around when 9-11 occurred. So if you want to talk about that part of your career journey as well. No, absolutely. And so I was in D.C. from 98 to I think I left in 2001. So um, the way the FBI promotion progression is that you, you become an FBI headquarters supervisor and then you then you go back out to uh, an FBI field office. And so I. I uh, competed for a uh, position in Jackson, Mississippi. It was a uh, criminal enterprise desk where I ran a, a squad of, uh, of agents of of gang, uh, drug, criminal enterprise, violent crime agents. And so when I, when I got I got to I think I got there right before 9-11. And I recall uh, driving into my office in Jackson when, when the airplanes uh, flew into in, into the building and uh, it was it was it was definitely um, it definitely changed the way the, the FBI uh, operated as far as our priorities, because back back during those days, our priorities were mostly um, criminal investigations, you know, organized crime, drugs, gangs, white collar crime, uh, corruption, uh, terrorism, counterintelligence. Uh, those were sort of at the, the bottom um, tier of what we worked, our priorities. And so 9-11 basically changed the way we we operated and. So terrorism and counterintelligence became priorities, and, and the uh, the criminal program sort of uh, uh, went beneath those uh, two main priorities. Mm-hmm. So most most of the resources that we had to work criminal were diverted towards um, 
um, national security. So uh, at that time, when I, I still was on the criminal side of the house, so I was doing uh, more or less, you know, having to develop partnerships with um, local and state law enforcement in order to um, address, you know, crime, you know, violent crimes, drugs, gangs, and and those crime problems never stopped. So you just had to find innovative ways to uh, to stay effective uh, in in those crime areas. So you you make your way back south. You, you're <laughs> yeah. Mississippi. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're out there busting heads, taking names, yep. running your yep. squad. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, you know, sort of what happens next in the journey? So, you know, once again, you know, um, I did that job for about four years. And I, I decided uh, to continue to move up in the organization. And so the next opportunity for me was an assistant special agent in charge. And that was the uh, the, uh, the number two guy in command of an FBI field office. So I went up north of I-55 and landed a uh, an ASAC position um, in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, so I was over the, the the criminal branch in Memphis, Tennessee, for about two years, and then I then I was uh, I led the national security branch for three years. So I was the ASAC at Memphis for for about five years. And um, that was a pretty interesting, you know, challenging assignment. And um, Memphis is a very um, active office. You know, we had a lot of uh, interesting cases uh, uh, that I managed while, while I was there. So the you're ASAC in Memphis, then you go over to national security. Is it after that? And, and one thing I, I want to ask, actually, this might be a good segue. You talk about these promotions, and I think looking back in hindsight, and it's easy to somewhat oversimplify it, but you're competing at every step of the way. Right. And I'm sure there are other people in the same field who are competing as well. They don't all land those gigs. So right. were there some disappointments along the way, and how did you pull yourself back up to bounce back from those disappointments? Well, you, you, you just got to keep trying. I mean, you, you can't uh, give up and, you know, you, you can't uh, even now. I mean, even when you're when you compete for jobs, you know, outside of in, in the private sector, let's say you want to retire and you, you want to do something different. You got to you, you got to keep raising your hand. You got to keep competing. Um, and once again, it's all about experience. It's all about, uh, you know, what you've accomplished uh, as a leader, you know, making yourself better, making yourself um you know, more competitive, um, uh, more attractive as, as a candidate. And one of the things that I did do um, as a supervisor, going from a supervisor to an ASAC, I decided to um, uh, pursue an MBA. Um, you know, I, I had the technical background, you know, the, uh, the steel major. I thought that a, a MBA would uh, make me more, um, you know, well-rounded, you know, as far mm -hmm. as organizational leadership, um, um, uh, looking at things from a, a holistic, you know, global view. Sure. And uh, I, I really, I really enjoy, you know, that uh, experience. So I started as a, a supervisor. I, I, I went to college at Bellhaven College. Bellhaven College had a campus in Jackson. And I was fortunate to, to, uh, to transfer uh, to Memphis when I got promoted. And I finished my MBA uh, from, from Bellhaven um, um, University now um, in Memphis. But once again, it was just a great experience and it definitely um, 
uh, prepare me for the next level for, you know, for, for the executive, uh, you know, level, you know, opportunities, you know, about, you know, you know, team building, um, um, you know, how to build a high performing team, um, you know, once again, looking at things from a, a global, you know, perspective, you know, being more strategic as opposed to being more, being more tactical and also, you know, leading people. I think those are some of the things that, uh, you know, I learned. So, you know, basically able to, um, uh, also, uh, you know, leverage your experience and also your education to, to help you, you know, a stronger leader, a stronger manager. Got it. How difficult was it balancing your leadership in the FBI at that point, as well as, you know, a, a class curriculum so many years after you'd been out of school? It was tough. I mean, and so one of the things that I've, I failed to mention is, you know, the, the FBI does a great job in, in, I mean, I think we have one of the better training uh, academies in, in the world. So along the way, uh, you can go to Quantico for like a refresher. Um, you know, uh, you could talk about emerging crime trends. You could talk about um, um, intelligence, uh, you know, uh, leadership training. Um, you know, we, I did spend some time at uh, Northwestern um, University, you know, Cal Law School of Business, um, um, you know, leading strategic, you know, how to think strategically because uh, as I mentioned, going from a criminal organization to a national security organization um, and, you know, involves some change and some people can be change resistant. So it was a paradigm shift. So some of the courses that we took were like navigating strategic change, you know, at a mid-level management level, at a senior executive, you know, leadership level. And, you know, and I just I just really I was like a sponge, you know, in taking some of those leadership courses because I just I really loved them. I really liked them. I think it, it really, uh, you know, benefited me. Um, and allowing me to to grow, you know, as a professional. Now you you got your MBA in Memphis. You pivot from uh, ASAC to national security, and then what becomes that next uh, move from there? So once again, going back to FBI headquarters, and so um, the assignment that I, that I got was the uh, deputy assistant director for the information technology. Uh, engineering division, which was part of the information technology branch. And that was, you know, totally out my comfort zone. You know, I was very operational, um, didn't have a clue about uh, information technology. So that experience, and, and then you're managing people who are smart, you know, who are smarter than you. And you have to learn that, um, you know, that, that language and nomenclature. So sometimes they can talk around you or talk over you. So you, 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 you had to learn, you know, that, that IT lingo. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I thought that was a great uh, ex experience once again. And also, uh, you know, rounding me out, not only being operational, but also, you know, being administrative and also understanding um, what role technology, you know, plays uh, in, in an enterprise, um, you know, our networks, you know, how to leverage technology uh, to make you more effective, more efficient, how it can enhance, you know, FBI operations, you know, cases, intelligence, you know, partnership building, you know, et cetera. Yeah. So you, you, you go back and now you're operating in a, you know, in a new era in, in the yes. world of tech. And so yes. what, what launches you back from that assistant director position uh, back into the field, so to speak? Well, it's just the you know normal progression, and I, I think I was kind of this enchanted with the leadership um, back at FBI headquarters. Um, 
And so just to go back a little bit, when I first got there, so they they hired me for my leadership. At that time, the FBI was um, going to a new case management uh, system. They had spent a lot of money on a case management system that was sort of um, de- designed towards you know criminal investigations. And so once you had that that paradigm shift going from criminals to national security, that uh, that case management system was sort of outdated. So they had to quickly pivot and scrap all that money um, and and come up with with a new um, case management system that basically uh, was was designed or geared towards national security. You know, counterintelligence, uh, counterterrorism, you know, cyber and intelligence, and and you had to basically operate in a you know, more so in a top secret, you know, secret environment. So that was an, another shift. So basically when I got there, my boss, the assistant director, he was like, hey, I'm going to be down in the basement, you know, trying to develop this case management system. So I need you to run my division. Mm-hmm. So here's the keys to the car. If you need me, I'll be down in the basement. So and so once again, that was that was an opening experience and, you know, having to hit the ground running. Um, you know, trying to do a top to bottom, you know, uh, review as to what needed to be fixed, you know, how to motivate people, you know, you know, I'm trying to figure out, uh, you know, who's who's, what's what's what, who's your strongest leader and, you know, come up with, with a vision, a strategy, you know, to, to build a high performing uh, a division. And I was successful in doing that. Yeah. So you did that for how long and then what was your next transition? And so, um, that was my first senior executive level um, uh, position, and you know, so that was part of the government secret. I mean, senior executive service, and so my my next assignment was, uh, you know, back uh, to an FBI field office uh, as a special agent in charge, and, and my first assignment was uh, in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. I think that was back in 2012, uh, where I assumed that position as the agent in charge of the Louisville, Kentucky field office. And that was the entire state um, of Kentucky. And the office was, uh, as I mentioned, was headquartered uh, in Louisville. Now, Louisville, you know, I'm sure back in the bootlegging days might have been excited <laughs> to be uh, an agent there. And I'm a huge fan of Louisville because I'm a big bourbon drinker. So yes. I wish I knew you then. I would have been like, oh, can we do this interview at your headquarters? Uh, but it's like now it's like, bourbon and horses. So, I mean, like, what are the challenges there? I mean, is crime even occurring? I know it's a rhetorical question, but what kind of crimes do you deal with in the state of Kentucky? Well, you know, Kentucky is a very unique state. Um, And, you know, I'm a history buff. So Kentucky was, um, uh, you know, back in, it it was, I call the upper north. So it was both a a slave state and, and a free state. And I've, I thought Kentucky had several, you know, regions. You, know, you had Appalachia, you had Western Tennessee, you had the Midwest. Um, so it, and you had, um, 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 uh, you know, the southern parts of it. So it was a very interesting mix of people. And some of the issues that uh, I experienced growing up in the South, like all the integration issues, like they they went through integration back in the 50s compared to uh, the seventies, you know, where I grew up at. So, um, there, there really wasn't many racial issues. And I was, I'm kind of surprised to see that, um, they're having issues now with the, uh, with the, uh, with the Breonna Taylor uh, shooting. But I I always felt that, uh, you know, there was, um, 
uh, you know, there was, I mean, I think law enforcement could could, could have done a better job in, you know, in, in building robust partnerships uh, in, in those communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your point, um, it, it wasn't as active. I mean, they, we, we did have issues with um, with opioids. We did have issues with uh, with violent crimes. Uh, but for the most part, the main issues that we had were like some of the white collar crime problems. Um, and uh, I did become a, con- a connoisseur of bourbon. So I, I would have been a good play- person for you to know, you know, um, about eight years ago. But um, um, Kentucky Derby was a, a big event there, obviously. And, and, you know, and, and we did have a security uh, footprint um, at the at each derby. So I was able to to attend several derbies uh, while, while I was there. I'm sure. Oh, yes. Yes. I, I, was, I was on duty. I worked. Uh, yeah, it was definitely a, a great time in, um, in Kentucky. Um, but it, it to me it paled in comparison as far as the uh, the job that, that I have now. Um, so I was there for two years and then I transitioned. Um, this job came open in Houston and I always wanted to work in Houston, like you. I love Houston. Uh, it's close to home, not too far, not too close. And so I did, when this opportunity came, I had to uh, compete for it, and and I've I got it, and I've been here for six years. But the comparison between Louisville and and, and Houston is just it's like night and day. Um, I say it's uh, you know it's five times the pace here in Houston, and uh, and and five times the uh, the personnel issues. Yeah. Wow. So you know, obviously, I know most people think about Houston with this all capital. But for someone like yourself coming into the FBI office, and I don't know how, you know, I don't know enough about the FBI or law enforcement, but one thing I know unmistakably, and as much as Houston is all capital, we also have one of the biggest cases in the history of the, you know, energy business related to fraud happened right here out of that same office that you now run. So that must have been significant moving into this, you know, I'm sure storied FBI office uh, that's prosecuted some of these significant uh, cases. So what was that like after you got the job? What was the feeling and what was that transition? Did you feel added pressure of having to come into this uh, kind of environment? Well, I was kind of surprised that I I kind of felt that we were underperforming um, as an office. And as I mentioned, I, I kind of felt that we, we were still going through that transition uh, from criminal uh, to national security, where I thought that we um, we moved too many resources from criminal mm. over to national security. And, and so Houston um, is a transshipment point, you know, and, and for dr- for gangs, drugs, you know, criminal enterprises, uh, human trafficking, as you mentioned, you know, the, the home of um, Enron. I mean, that was a huge white collar crime investigation. And also the, uh, the Stanford case. So, um, and you know, we're number two or number three when it comes to the number of Fortune, you know, 500 companies. So we have a, a huge, you know, financial, you know, sector here. Also, the largest medical, you know, center uh, in in the world, um, as well as you know, you know, 5,000, you know, plus, you know, oil and gas companies. And lastly, a very international, you know, uh, community. And one of the things I found, you know, interesting was the number of 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 consulate you know the, the consulates so you know a lot of a lot of international establishments are are here and uh, I just kind of felt that we were not performing um, the way we needed to be as far as you know building partnerships uh, you know being respected by our you know our local you know state and federal partners 
and also working the uh, the, the caliber of investigations um, um, that that Houston should be working because of, of this is a target-rich environment. You got all this stuff here, so you you know you, you got to have some some strong investigation. So you know it's all about identifying uh, strengths and weaknesses, and, and as I mentioned, coming up with with a game plan to. Uh, to build a high-performing team and also, you know, to to enhance an office performance. Yeah. So you've been in this position now for six years. What might you say has uh, shifted uh, from your in your you know in your opinion? What has shifted um, about the office since your tenure in charge? Well, I'm still I'm still very busy, and I think sometimes you can be victim of your own success. But I think. Um, you know, building a uh, strong leadership team, you know, managing expectations, um, um, educating or raising awareness. I mean, on raising awareness to your troops, your your employees as to what our our roles and response and, and responsibilities are. I mean, you, you talked about the FBI's mission, you know, protecting the American people, upholding the laws of the Constitution and also, you know, staying ahead of the threat. Um, and so. In order for us to do that, you know, we have to, first of all, know what's going on. We, we can't be change resistant. Uh, we have to be we have to be willing to work the complex cases. We have to be willing to um, know what's in our area of responsibility. Um, so, you know, you got to you got to you, you, know, you encourage people to work. You got to push. And um, and also, I think the biggest piece for me was to build a strong leadership team. And I think uh, I've gotten to the point now where I have a very you know strong leadership team to where you know, I, I just say, hey, this is what we need to do. Get out the way. Let, let them do it. And when you need me, you know, I'll parachute in to, you know, provide assistance to you. But, you know, this is your branch. This is your program to run. And I say that because, you know, we have a, a national security branch. We have a cyber branch. We have a criminal branch. We have a white collar crime branch. We have an intel branch. Um, and we have several small offices throughout my entire territory, you know, Brian College Station. Uh, Beaumont. I have branch managers that oversee you know all those components, and uh, I try to run my office like a business. And you know my line of the business was on that, you know, that security, you know, cyber, white collar crime, you know, gangs, drugs, human trafficking, etc. And once again, you know, give your people the the guidance, the direction, and and, and get out the way. Got it. If I can segue for a second. Could you help me understand the relationship between the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the Department of Justice? Okay, so the FBI, so we work over three hundred uh, federal, you know, violations, um, and so the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, each, 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 uh, each, uh, there's several U.S. Attorney's Office throughout the entire uh, United States, so. U.S. Attorney's Office. There are there are prosecutors, so they basically prosecute our our cases. Not only FBI, but DEA, uh, ATF, uh, Homeland Security investigation. So they they prosecute uh, federal cases. Uh, Department of Justice is like the, uh, the the corporate headquarters of the United United States Attorney's Office. And so there are several United States Attorney's Offices, as I mentioned, and you know that their corporate headquarters is in in Washington D.C. Uh, the Department of Justice, or Attorney General, um, you know, Barr is the um, is the um, CEO, so to speak. Got it, got it. So, the, um, I want to talk again about some of the things that are going on now. 
what recently, um, you know, in the times that we're living in, obviously you've got racial unrest, et cetera, and there's a lot of economic hardships out there. Um, when I read the newspapers these days or article online, more likely, you see an uptick in crime. You know, do you have any thoughts about that and what that looks like in the near term, at least as we continue to deal with this pandemic? Right. And so we have been very busy. I mean, so, you know, during COVID-19, obviously, in order to keep, you know, my employees and by the way, I have like a thousand employees in, in my field office. And, and so we, we have been on a uh, reduced operating capacity. And when I say that, you know, we're limiting the number of folks uh, that we uh, allow into the office and we, we're encouraging uh, as many people to telework as possible, you know, if they can. And it's been very challenging for us because most of our work um, sits on a, uh, a classified network. So our top secret network. So we have to be very creative and innovative and, and continuing to find ways to work these cases and um, and accomplish the mission. With that being said, uh, we've been very busy. I mean, we I, this is the the busiest that I've seen it. Um, I don't know what's what was causing it. Could be that, um, uh, like for example, some of the cyber crimes um, um, uh, we're seeing. Uh, we're seeing an uptick in cyber crimes. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing an uptick in in violent crimes. I think uh, it could be you know COVID nineteen related. Uh, like PPE, PPP money, you know, this this being funneled, you know, out to, um, you know, various folks uh, in, our, in our area. You know, some folks that may not be accustomed to having money now have money and they're and they're spending it. They're they're trying to buy, you know, drugs or, or what have you. And, they're, and our drugs may not be available. So they're starting to commit, you know, violent crimes or there's there's frauds and schemes associated you know, with PPP money. There's also been some issues with um, with PPE, you know, um, you know, fraudulent PPE mm. uh, you know, entities making representations that, that we can provide you with these large quantities of PPE and that those those quantities, you know, don't don't exist. Mm. And I think the biggest piece is uh, the uh, increase in cyber crimes. I think with everybody, you know, leveraging um, um, you know, telework or networks uh, uh, to do their work from home, it gives the cyber criminals an, an opportunity, you know, to um, um, infiltrate your IT infrastructure um, you know, or try to find a way through you, you know, to into your company or your organization, you know, try to find ways to um, um, plant malware or, or steal some of your, you know, steal some of your money or some of your company's, you know, money or resources. Yeah. So you, uh, you know, that makes me think you, uh, in the 2000s when you were working in, on technology at headquarters or rather the late 90s, when you look at that time period compared to now, ha, you know, simultaneously uh, online security has theoretically gotten better. But has the issue of cybercrime gotten worse over that period? And if so, what do you see as the outlook for cybercrime going forward? Well, I think it's always going to be a problem. I think, um, especially during this COVID nineteen environment, and I think um, you know technology continues to get you know faster and faster, and um, you know some companies don't practice cyber hygiene you know the, the way they need to. You know some some companies don't uh, invest in um, in cybersecurity. 
and it's, and it's not just, you know, it's also training. Um, um, you know, it could be, you know, training your employees, you know, not to, to click on suspicious emails. Yeah. You got business email compromises, you know, you got um, uh, ransomware. Uh, just, you know, educating your, your employees about the, the threats that are out there. Um, and also, I think the biggest, the, the newest dynamic, once again, is, you know, working from home, you know, um, and having access to your, your, your company's network and, and, and can, can an adversary, you know, target you to get inside your, your, your company's IT infrastructure in an effort to, you know, I, you know, steal their, their trade secrets, intellectual property, um, you know, uh, have access to, you know, to, to their bank accounts. Uh, et cetera. And I, I think the, the biggest key to that is, is just, you know, making those investments in IT and cybersecurity. And unfortunately, you know, those investments cost money and some companies may not have the uh, the financial, uh, you know, purse strings to, you know, to make those um, to make those adjustments or those changes. So for companies who can afford some of those security tools, are the security tools getting better or the criminals getting better in your opinion? Com combination of both. And, you know, so once <laughs> They're always busy. So once, you know, once you've um, you clean this part up, they, they, they identify a workaround. You know, it's all about staying ahead of the threat. You know, once you think you figured everything out, something else changes. And I think with technology, with social media, with innovation, I mean, there's always going to be a challenge. There's always going to be, um, you know, something new out there. You know, being in law enforcement for over, you know, 20 years, when I first started, we didn't have email. You know, we didn't have cell phones. You know what I mean? So uh your your cell phone is a computer you know people have access to you uh you have access to the internet um and it's it's going to continue to get you know sleeker faster you know i think our our lives uh you know re revolve around that uh, instant gratification that instant access the 24/7 media you know we want uh, we want that information you know we have a thirst for it and it's not going to change we're not going to go backwards we're going to go forward and it's going to be something newer something faster, something sleeker, and it's always going to be a challenge. And I think that's why you that's why you have to encourage your people not to be change resistant. You gotta have strategy pillars, you, you gotta have a mission, and you gotta you gotta keep reminding your employees, you know, what our role is. And if you if we are premier, you know, we have to act premier. Um, and that's what that's what the American people expect. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> Getting my taxpayers' uh, dollars. <laughs> Absolutely, you you pay our salaries, and if if something were to happen to you, and and you want to call the FBI and just say, "I need, I lost a million dollars, I need you to help me get it back," and I mean, you want us to 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 jump right on it and to to get, to get your money back to you. Yeah, and that's and that's what we should be doing. Yeah, what do you see as the future of intelligence? So we've we've come a long way, and you know, and there's so much I can say, you know, on the unclassified. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, on the unclassified, you know, network. But um, um, we've we've had to do a better job in 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 partnering with the intelligence community. Um, so some, you know, some of the um, lines of communications, uh, we we had to sort of, you know, find ways to collaborate um, with with not only our internet our um, Intelligence community partners, but also with our law enforcement partners throughout the entire United, throughout the entire world. I mean, so we, we may collaborate with uh, the Australians, with the Canadians, um, you know, with with the uh, the UK, um, and and that's 
that's what we have to do because uh, what impacts us also impacts them. And it really takes a whole of society approach to, you know, to address some of these national security threats. But the biggest piece of that is, is uh, information sharing. You know, you, you can't just keep information to yourself and, and to where it can, it can help a company or entity. Uh, if you have information that someone is trying to steal, you know, someone's intellectual property or somebody's technology or somebody's research, um, you have to let them know that, hey, you know, your, your technology is, is at risk and you got to do a better job in protecting it. And I think that's how we have changed, you know, over the years to where, where one time we may have that information and we, and we may be, you know, challenged into pushing that information out to, to, to the consumer or the decision maker, you know, who, who could benefit from it. Is there anything that keeps you up at night? <laughs> I think, I think um, you know, trying to stay ahead of the threat, as I mentioned, you know, things change so, so, so fast and, and, you know, we have limited resources. Um, and so uh, we, we have so many responsibilities, as I mentioned, we work over 300 federal crimes and gangs, drugs, criminal enterprises, counterintelligence, counterterrorism, uh, that, that we have to stay vigilant. We have to stay on top of everything. And we, and we simply don't, don't have the manpower to do so. And, um, and so we have to rely on our traditional partnerships, you know, with the community, you know, with the intelligence community, you know, with, um, with law enforcement, you know, we have to be more sharing of information that may be classified, you know, find a way to get that classified information out into public consumption. And, and that, that helps educate the community, you know, helps raise their awareness, uh, help encourage those folks to, um, to protect their intellectual property, their IT infrastructure, you know, their, their bank accounts, you know, um, et cetera. Well, You're on mute. I said, I've got to get you to give the FBI a plug. So if you have a young person who's thinking about pursuing a career in the FBI, uh, and let's just theoretically say they were about 17 or 18 years old at this time, what advice would you give as to how they might pursue such endeavor? Well, I think uh, I would, my advice to a young person is be, be careful uh, what you post on social media. Um, um, because when, when companies hire, you know, young college graduates, you know, everything is, they'll, they'll do a social media scrub uh, just to see what's out there. So just be careful, you know, what you post, you know, what you, what you have out there, you know, what your digital footprint uh, looks like. Um, you know, a lot of federal agencies, um, you know, have, um, you know, pre-employment, uh, you know, uh, requirements or qualifications as far as uh, doing a background investigation. So, you know, you, you got to have good credit, you know, uh, you got to have limited drug use uh, in the FBI. You, you can't um, use marijuana within three years of of your application. Um, and also, you know, we do a very thorough, um, you know, background investigation where we go out and, and, and we talk to your neighbors, we talk to your instructors, uh, we, we do a credit history check. We, you know, we, we do criminal history checks. Um, so just be, be, be mindful of that. And it's not just the, the FBI, other companies uh, in the private sector are going towards that same, that, that same model. You know, we, we do pre-employment, uh, you know, polygraphs. So I, I know you're going to, you know, growing up, you, you're going to make mistakes, but just, just think about um, um, 
the way you conduct yourself, the way you carry yourself, you know, who you associate with, you know, some of the activities that uh, they may, um, you know, prevent you or prohibit you from, you know, being hired by, by, you know, by the FBI or also even by, you know, by the private sector or some of these other government agencies. Are there any college degrees or career backgrounds that might be a bit more attractive or make a candidate more competitive? You know, I think you, I think you, you touched on it. I think um, um, cyber is, in my humble opinion, is the way of the future. Um, so anything, you know, computer uh, related, uh, network related, is going to, is going to give you that competitive advantage. Also, you know, a STEM major, you know, uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. I think, you know, we, we definitely, you know, covet uh, those majors as well. And, 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 and lastly, um, you know, law and also, um, uh, 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 finance and, and accounting. You know, we do work uh, financial uh, investigations. Um, you know, uh, we still uh, do a lot of um, high-level, um, you know, fraud investigations, banks, you know, uh, embezzlements, uh, you know, white-collar crime. So we're always going to covet, you know, someone with, with, a, with a strong, you know, financial uh, background. Got it. So it's my final question. What's on the horizon for you? And that's a great question. So, you know, I mean, you know, you always want to, um, you know, contemplate retirement. You know, I can't retirement. I, I'm sorry, I can't retire. I got retirement on the brain. But uh, I definitely want to retire eventually. You know, I want to do something different. So I'm looking at either going back to the private sector, um, doing some consulting, you know, starting my own business or, you know, just, you know, just continuing to, you know, to grow professionally and to continue to challenge myself. Excellent. And just any closing words uh, or remarks you might want to offer? You know, I, I think for, you know, a young a young person growing up, you know, just, um, you know, be yourself. You know, no one does that better than you. And and, you know, if you run across adversity, you know, don't give up. You know, just 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 keep grinding, you know, keep trying. Um, um, you know, what don't kill you, you know, make you stronger. And it prepares you, you know, for for larger and tougher opportunities. Um, so just, you know, just don't let no one tell you what you can't do. You know, just just do it, and you know, and and just be yourself. So, um, if you have interest in in uh, working for the FBI, it's a great opportunity. It allows you to grow both, um, you know, personally and professionally. And, and we do have some overseas assignments. So the FBI is a global organization. I think there's a role uh, or a fit for mostly everybody in the FBI. So definitely consider us as an employment option um, if if that's what you want to do. So that, that's my that's my five minute uh, <laughs> recruitment pitch. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. At least though, you, you know, the FBI got their money's worth out of this. <laughs> Absolutely. Man, Perry, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your transparency, your candor and for your humanity, making uh, what you do simply a profession, but not define who you are. Uh, you've talked to us about the importance of the FBI's mission of staying ahead of the threat and protecting America and its citizens. You've talked about the importance of being a well-rounded person, improving upon your expertise, acquiring further knowledge. You've talked about being prepared early on and making sure that you make good decisions about, um, you know, just make good decisions overall so that those do not 
prohibit what could be um, career opportunities in the future. I'd also even put in a plug that you talk about the importance of having good credit and how all these other things build up on each other. You've encouraged students about looking at careers that look at the future of the threats that we have to deal with. Uh, my guest today has been Perry Turner, special agent in charge of the Houston FBI office. My name is Lalu Davis-Yemitin, and you've been listening to my brother podcast.